It's all about the thrills in this chapter 190 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and I can't wait to share three new thrillers that will keep you compulsively turning pages all summer long. First up, best-selling author Tess Gerritsen shares why she thinks some readers won't like her new thriller. Debut author Connor Sullivan tells us how an article about Alaska inspired his Hunger Games-esque political thriller. And finally, we chat with flight attendant turned author TJ Newman, whose new book is being hailed as the blockbuster debut of the summer. What do you get when you mix two thriller writers and allow them to create the story of an affair that leads to murder? The result is Choose Me, the suspenseful and surprising new thriller from Tess Gerritsen and Gary Braver. I had the chance to talk with Tess about the book she acknowledges might leave some readers unsatisfied. It starts off with pretty much an emotional train wreck, and we want to back up in the story and see how he got there. It's about a university professor who has an affair with one of his students, a very bad no-no. He's married, and it just his life starts to fall apart, and then the student ends up dead, murdered. So did he do it? And that is the story. Um, we bring in a third character who is the uh, police detective, and she has to ferret out the past and uh, the bad person. And so it's really, it's a murder mystery, but it's also a story about all the things that can go wrong when you make a mistake. Now, you wrote this book with Gary Braver, and it's told from both a man's point of view and a woman's point of view. We have the professor has alternating chapters along with the the student, Taryn, and the cop. What was it like to team up to write this kind of thriller? I always think that point of view is the story. How would a woman um, and a man view their illicit affair differently? So um, we we told it in different chapters. He wrote all the male point of view chapters. I wrote the, the uh, two women's uh, points of view. Um, and I wanted to see what, you know, how we would have different takes on the same situation. So does that mean you guys wrote uh, concurrently and then kind of matched it up? Or did you did one of you write one chapter and then the other one would write the other and then you would see where you landed? Um, one of us would write a chapter and then the and then would send it to the other person. And then uh, that we would tack, you know, we would just take turns tacking on new chapters to what was already written. It was a it was a really complicated process. I've never done this before. And we wrote it in chronologic order. So it starts off with the beginning of the affair. Um, but when we finished writing it, it was a little bit like being a film editor. You have all this stuff that you've been filming for a year, and now you have to reconstruct it and put it in a different uh, sequence. So we started off with the murder, and then we back up and see how we got to that point. I love that you started the book that way, because when I first opened and got to that page that said after, and then we pick up with the murder, I was like, this is so cool. It's like we're starting the end of the story at the beginning. Well, I think a lot of the, a lot of the interest for us is that you know we we know what happens, but we just don't know how we got there. Um, and the other reason we did that was we wanted to have Frankie, the detective, um, who is a, a wonderful middle-aged woman with teenage daughters of her own. We wanted to introduce her very early into the story, so she gets the very first chapter, and she's the one who's going back in time, figuring these things out. I love the character of Frankie, and I guess that shouldn't really surprise me because you've written the the series that inspired the Rizzoli and Isles TV show, and you have a strong female cop, you know, who who's always at the center of the action. Yeah, well, this one Frankie's different. She's she's older. She's uh, she's well into her fifties, and what I liked about her was that I I, mean, I feel as if we don't give enough 
attention to older female characters. It's like they're all young and, and ready for Hollywood. Um, I wanted a, a woman who's had, who's lived a life, um, who knows what it's like to be a mother, who knows that teenage girls can be very complicated. Um, so she brings into the story her intelligence as well as her experience as a mom. There's a lot of discussion in the book about how women have been perceived in classic literature, and that's in part because the professor is an English lit professor who teaches this seminar about star-crossed lovers. And it's obvious that the tale of Eloise and uh, Abelard influenced your story. What drew you guys in that direction? Well, you know, we had, um, first of all, Gary is, a, is a, uh, an English professor, so he was familiar with a lot of these tales. But what um, I think what started it was I had just finished reading the Aeneid, um, which is about the, the Trojan hero who, um, who ends up founding Rome. And en route, he falls in love or he has an affair with um, Queen Dido. And that chapter where he abandons her and she, she commits suicide on her own funeral pyre was so moving. And um, I just thought, this needs to be retold in a modern way. So we folded that into this whole idea of a course about abandoned lovers, about uh, you know star-crossed lovers, and it just seemed that they were parallels between all these ancient stories of of tragic love and what happens in our contemporary stories. It just it just all seemed to meld together. You also have a lot of fun messing with readers' heads and and keeping <laughs> us guessing whether Taryn, the student, is a victim or a perpetrator. Yes. Um, I wanted to make her complex. I mean, I, there's a lot of people who say they just cannot stand her, but she is a complicated person. And the, the challenge for me is making her both scary as well as sympathetic. Um, we may not like her. We may think she is a little bit nuts, but we also need to understand where she came from and all the terrible things that have happened in her life that have made her who she is. I know I've wanted to shake her a few times, but at the same time, like, give her a hug and be like, you don't have to be doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, it's like real life. We have friends who just drive us nuts, but at the same time, they're still our friends. 100%. Although I'm hoping none of my friends are like her. <laughs> right. I don't want to be her friend, but we, I know people who are like her. <laughs> are you excited to have this out in the world and to hear what readers have to say? Yeah, we are. We're we're um we're a little we're I guess I could say we are braced for some of the themes that are going to be sensitive to people. Um I mean, that's we started off with the idea that this is about the Me Too movement. This was about a, a, an affair that should not have happened and really it's it's the man's responsibility because it it is his fault. Um and I know this is sensitive and I know because we tried to make the man a human being who is sympathetic and who suffers for what he did. It's going to feel as if we've made the villain the good guy. So that, that's one of the things we're concerned about, that people are going to take that um, in a way that makes them angry. But at the same time, we want to show people uh, are not 100% bad or 100% good. They are very complicated things. You saying that reminds me of a passage in the book about an exchange over a trigger warning. Yes, that that was Gary. That was what Gary said. You know, as a professor, um, as a teacher, and I've, I've heard this from other teachers, it is hard now to be teaching classes where people are easily triggered by a lot of things. Um, and how do you how do you really you know how can you teach um, freely? How can you how can you present all sides of the story if there are people who are going to be offended by something you say? So it is. I think it is tough to be a teacher these days.
Yeah, and, and also when you just think about literature and books in general, they're, they're meant to provoke, but you also have to understand that there are going to be people out there who maybe it's just too much. Right. I mean, if you're not exploring things that make you uncomfortable, then what are you going to what are you going to be reading? Are you just going to be reading Winnie the Pooh? Um, the world is an uncomfortable place, and we are always going to be confronted with things that uh, disturb us. And that's probably one of the most important roles of fiction is to open up the world to us. So now that you've done your your first teamed up book, do you think you'll do it again? You know, it was so complicated. Um, it, I'm, I am right now going back to solo writing. I, I mean, I have another Rizzoli Niles book that I've just finished. Um, and it was it was an interesting experiment, but I do think that it ends up being almost twice the work. That's really interesting. People would totally not think that. No, I know they, they wouldn't, but it's um, beyond just writing the story. There is also a lot of, uh, a lot of moving parts that have to have to click together. And I think it was the editing part that was more difficult. All right. Well, I know I look forward to whatever else you have coming down the pike, whether it's by yourself or teamed up with another writer. In the meantime, people can pick up Choose Me, Tess Gerritsen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Odds are you've heard of the Bermuda Triangle, but do you know about the Alaska Triangle? The area between Anchorage, Juneau, and Barrow is home to some of the most inhospitable land and the area between Anchorage, Juneau, and Barrow is home to some of the most inhospitable and wild land in North America. It also happens to be an area where a lot of people go missing. In fact, nearly 2,000 people are reported missing in Alaska every year. That stat served as the springboard for Connor Sullivan, whose debut, Sleeping Bear, is packed with heroes, villains, and a whole lot of action. He told me how the classic woman missing in the woods story morphed into a political thriller. Growing up, I read a lot of Vince Flynn and Brad Thor. Um, and, you know, when I, when I started the book, you know, I got to be honest, I didn't actually think that it was going to turn into this political thriller. It just kind of happened that way. And, you know, it kind of scared me um, just because I'd never really seen that done before. And, you know, as the book progressed, I was like, you know, do I do this? Do I kind of go back to the woman goes missing in the woods trope? But, you know, I, I think that it being different and having that swing really made it stronger, made it different enough that, you know, people are talking about it and that people want to read it. I know I really enjoyed the fact that you have a a female character who's this dominant, kick-ass type of person in a book like this, because that's so rare. You you don't really find books like this that really highlight a female character. Usually she's the damsel in distress. And, you know, it's funny, like, you know, people always say don't follow trends or whatever. But, you know, or, you know, because back when I started it about five years ago, um, I was working as an intern in Warner Brothers, and the whole thing that everyone was looking for in scripts was like a strong female character or a strong lead. But when I was developing Cassie, I didn't even really think about that. I just thought of her as a character first and as a person, and then it kind of just morphed into, you know, me figuring out her history and you know what she's good at and her attributes. So it, it wasn't necessarily a decision. It just kind of happened. How did this whole idea start? I was actually at uh, work at Warner Brothers. I was in the commissary eating lunch, and I stumbled upon an article, um, an article I have not been able to find since, 
about how many people go missing in Alaska a year. And the numbers are just absolutely staggering. It's like over 2000 a year of missing person reports that gets, that get filed. And I was reading that and I just said, well, there's a thriller. And after I finished the article, I started to do some research on my own, like right there at lunch. And the first thing I did was go on Google Maps and just look at how big Alaska was and the triangle of where these people go missing. And as I'm zooming back, I see, well, there's the Bering Sea, you know, to the west. And then there's Russia right there. And my mind started churning. I'm like, okay, what can I do with this? Um, you know, what, what if I have this, like, Russia whole theme with Alaska? I don't really, I've never really seen that done before. So that, that was kind of the beginning of that idea. So I don't want to really give a whole lot away because you really do a good job in, in building up to where we're going in the book. But the Russian angle, let's call it that, is that purely imaginative or did you base that on some sort of another article maybe you read somewhere? No, that was purely imaginative. I did see, though, probably about two years into uh, writing the book that it was an article, I think it was on the BBC, that Russia was trying to have a Hunger Games-type reality show. Um, I don't know if they ever went through with it, but I thought that was very interesting, um, especially when I was in the middle of writing the book. So are you as an outdoorsy person as your characters are? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm as capable as them, but yeah, definitely as outdoorsy. And does that mean you've been to Alaska? Yep, I've been to Alaska a couple times. Um, have not actually been to the area that I was writing about. Um, I did a lot of skiing in Alaska, but I haven't been to that area. I just, you know, at the time I was writing it, I was a poor aspiring writer living in Los Angeles. I didn't have any money to travel. So I just, you know, I just talked to people who were from the area. I did so much research that I actually felt like I've been there. You know, I spent five years in my head in that area. So... I don't know. After reading a book like yours, I'm not sure how quickly I'm going to like be packing up and heading out on my own to camp in the middle of the woods somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you definitely have to know what you're doing. I know this is your debut. What has that been like for you? Oh, it's been fantastic. It's It's been, you know, honestly, it's just a dream come true. You know, you spend so many years trying to get good at a craft and you know, there's that uncertainty if it's, you know, even going to get published. And then when it does, it's, you know, everything just falls in line. It, it just, I feel like the luckiest person in the world. I know it's an easy or it's a, a common question in these types of book interviews, but has there been any interest on the film side, especially you coming from that sort of world? Um, yeah, there's been some stuff. Um, can't really talk about it, but it just kind of, you know, it went out a week ago or so. So we're we're kind of just seeing, you know, coming off the holiday, we're we're seeing uh, what's going to happen. So it's definitely exciting. And do you plan to keep on writing? Uh, do I, uh, writing books? Oh yeah. All right. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed Sleeping Bear. I think if anybody is looking for a really great book to pack with them on a trip somewhere, this one is perfect. Although maybe not up to Alaska, that might be a little bit too meta. But <laughs> Connor Sullivan, thank you for spending the time today to talk to us about it. Yes, thank you so much. There has been a lot of hype surrounding Falling, the debut novel from flight attendant turned author T.J. Newman. A seven-figure deal, a bidding war over the film rights, numerous media pieces. And you know what? 
It's well-deserved. The book, described as Jaws at 35,000 feet, grabs you from the very first sentence and doesn't let go until the last page. This is an incredible adrenaline ride of a book, and your story to publication is just as thrilling. But first, let's start with your 30-second pitch for readers to pick it up. Okay, Falling is the story of Coastal Airways Flight 416. And what the passengers on board this plane don't know is that just before they took off, the family of their pilot was kidnapped. And he has been told that if he doesn't crash the plane, they will be killed. And so then the story follows the um, valiant efforts of the crew and the passengers in the air and the FBI and the family on the ground in their attempts to do the impossible. You're a debut author. This is your first novel being published. And I think you have a story that any struggling writer out there can can like put up on a pedestal and look to because you were rejected by 41 literary agents before you found the right one. How did you keep yourself going? I kept telling myself every time a rejection would come, and and trust me, I felt every single one of those 41 rejections, and there were a lot of moments where I was very close to throwing it in the towel and listening to the 41 people who were telling me, nope, not good enough, nope. But I just kept saying to myself, you didn't come this far just to come this far. And so I kept going. I'm going to back up a little bit. I want to give people some of your history. You are uh, you, you worked as a flight attendant for Virgin America and Alaska Airlines. And I know you were writing this book on flights, in between breaks, during layovers, on cocktail napkins. That's all true? That's all completely true. The idea for the story even came to me at work. I was uh, working a red eye to New York from Los Angeles, which is also the path of the flight in the book. And I'm standing at the front of the cabin, looking out into the aircraft at the sleeping passengers. And I have this thought that, you know, their lives, my life, the, all of my crew, all of our lives are in the hands of the pilots. And so with that much power and responsibility, how vulnerable does that make a commercial pilot? You know, it was it was the first time I'd really had that thought, and I couldn't shake it. And so, like, several days later, it had kind of turned into a more concrete scenario, and I was working a different trip, and I said to the pilot that I was flying with, I said to the captain, hey, what would you do if your family was kidnapped and you were told that if you didn't crash the plane, they would be killed? What would you do? And they said the look on his face terrified me. You totally played a mind game on that pilot, too, during that flight. (laughs) But I didn't mean to. I really didn't mean to. I really was just curious because it was just like this new idea that had come to me, and I wanted to know what he would say. But when I saw that look on his face, that's when I knew. That's when there was like, as a writer, you know, you feel it. You know when you've hit that story idea that you won't be able to stop until you've written this story. And that was it, because I knew he didn't have an answer, and I knew it terrified him. And so then I started writing, yeah, like you said, on on planes. I, I work a lot of red eyes. I'm a night owl, and I, I like to be quiet. And so once the passengers were all 
taken care of and asleep, I would go into my galley because I, I worked up in first class most of the time. So I had a galley to myself and I would write. I would write by hand on anything that was there, you know, the back of a catering bill or the back of a passenger manifest or sometimes I'd just grab a napkin if I didn't have time to be writing pages, but I wanted to jot down a note. And and little by little, it became a full story. So while there is a, a hero pilot in this story of yours, the rest of the flight crew uh, naturally plays a major role. And I think it might come to as a surprise to a lot of readers that a flight attendant's main job first priority is safety and not serving snacks and drinks. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, that's been one of the most gratifying and consistent responses to this book is that people say, I had no idea. I have so much more respect for flight attendants. I I didn't know what your job really was because people think that we're on board for service. They think that we're just there to bring you a drink. And I promise you, if a flight attendant was only on board to bring you drinks, they would have replaced us with vending machines a really long time ago. We are on board for safety and security and to be medical first responders, period. Do you guys really assess passengers the way the characters in your book do? Absolutely. We're constantly monitoring the cabin and constantly looking out for, you know, everything from, you know, smaller stuff to this passenger appears to be intoxicated, which can turn into a bigger issue if you're not careful, you know, to larger things. We're constantly having situational awareness and reading passengers in situations. So I'm a nervous flyer. This book had me at the edge of my seat while I was firmly planted on the ground. I couldn't even imagine picking this up and reading it on a plane. You think they'll be selling it at Hudson News at the airports? <laughs> well, I hope so. I think it's a I think it's a perfect parent. I mean, I wrote it on a plane, so I think it's a natural setting to read it. And you know, I've actually had a lot of people who have said I'm a nervous flyer, and this actually helped. Because I think a lot of people think planes, you're either up, you're down, and there's not much in between. But when you read this book, I think you see that as a passenger and as a crew member, you have a lot more agency than you think. And there's a little bit more control than than people think they have on an aircraft. And that's really, I think, what a fear of flying is, is a fear of loss of control. I know there are going to be some people out there who are going to think that your idea is going to put an idea into some bad guy's head somewhere. What do you say to that kind of criticism? I would say that I'm a flight attendant with an overactive imagination. And if I could come up with this, I guarantee the people who spend their lives and careers dedicated to making sure things like this don't happen have already figured out a solution. I'm sure you've been following all these stories of passengers behaving badly on planes recently. There seems to be like one every day in the news. What do you think is going on? Look, there's a lot going on in the world right now. And we're coming off of a year where, you know, patience is thin and tension is high. And I think air travel can enhance, you know, anxiety like that. And so... I think we're seeing that very clearly. You know, the the New York Times just ran a piece where they were saying that the FAA has documented more than 3,000 cases of unruly passengers just this year alone, just in 2021. And then over 2,300 of them were mask-related in trying to enforce mask rules. So I think what we're seeing in the air is, is what we're seeing on the ground. It's just a 
sign of the times. And it's really frustrating and disheartening to see flight attendants um, who are just doing their jobs and just trying to, because, because our job ultimately is to keep passengers safe. And it's frustrating to see people fighting that. Those people tend to be the outliers. I think the majority of the people understand what they're what they're trading in order to travel. But what's what's one thing a normal air passenger can do to show those working their flight that they really appreciate all they're doing for them and to keep them safe? This is going to sound like it's not a big deal, but I assure you it is. Even something as small as when the cart gets to your aisle to take your beverage order, have your headphones out and look us in the eye. I know that sounds silly, but what you're really saying with that is I see you and I respect you. And I can't tell you more often than not, we don't get that respect. I'm going to keep that in mind, and I hope everyone else out there does. I'm not guilty of doing that. I just want to put that on the record. But for those people (laughs) who do do that, that's got to be so infuriating that people think that, you know, you're just there to serve them something and then take their trash away. That's it. That's why. And that's why I'm so, so grateful, like I said, for the response that this this book is getting is that I really do think that's a hidden engine of this story is that, you know, what a flight attendant really is there to do. And I'm grateful that it's giving people maybe a little bit more perspective in addition to just being a fun read, just being a fun story, which was my my ultimate goal with this book was just to have fun and take people on a fun ride. And if they get something like a broadened perspective out of it, even the better. I mean, it is a total fun ride. And I also know that there was a bidding war over the film rights. So we're going to be able to see this on a screen somewhere. How exciting is that? It's it's insane. I'm still I'm still not getting over seeing my book on bookshelves. And then you add to that this idea that I could one day see the story on the on the screen. It's just I am I'm pinching myself every day. I don't know how it got to this point, but I'm so, so grateful that it has. I know authors, I kind of put them in a tight spot when I ask this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, do you have any ideas in your head for who you would love to see cast in some of these roles? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm loving hearing other people's answer to that question because it's such an interesting, like, really, that's how that character came off to you? Huh. So what are you hearing? Well, I'm, uh, I don't I don't even know all of the all of the names. It's just it's more just like it immediately turns back to like I immediately start analyzing how I wrote that character and saying where did where did that come off to you? You know, so I'm hesitant to give any any ideas of what I had in my head because it's just it's my own little world up there, and I kind of I'm interested to see what another set of creative hands would do. So. I, w- I just want to see how someone else would interpret it. We're just going to have to wait and see then. Yeah. I know you have a two-book deal. Is your next one going to be a thriller? I'm playing the next one just as close to the chest as I played this one. Because when I started writing this one, I didn't tell hardly anybody. I only told people I was writing a book on a need-to-know basis, basically. Um, so when this when this deal went public and it, it was known, I've got 
close friends and family who are calling and writing saying, you know, oh, my gosh, this is so incredible. Congratulations. By the way, you wrote a book. What is going on? So I'm, I'm playing the second book uh, just as close to the chess as I, as I played the first book. Well, listen, when you get the kind of press that you've been getting for this one, I mean, I just love the blurb from Dom Winslow, stunning and relentless jaws at 35,000 feet. I can understand why you might want to play things a little close to the chest and keep people on their toes. Because <laughs> that's what you do with this book. You can totally keep everybody on their toes. Well, thank you. And that was that was kind of a, a goal. I had a overarching mantra, I guess you'd, you'd say, when I was um, writing, which was pacing, just making the pace relentless, not letting a moment exist where the reader could put the book down and be comfortable with that. And I think uh, some of the uh, like really diehard book, book nerds out there, bookworms, they're going to be able to get through this on a on a L.A. to New York flight. No problem. So. Yeah, it's a fast read. And I, I love that. Everybody says that, that they, they read it so fast. And I think that's I think that's great because I think, you know, I'm a slow reader myself. Um, so I always love a fast read because I'm my TBR pile. My to be read pile is just just anxiety inducing. So. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking with T.J. Newman. The book is falling. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today to talk about it. Lisa, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Please return your seats to an upright position and secure those tray tables because that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, I'll get to feature one of my favorite kinds of books, one that highlights a woman whose contributions have been lost to history until an author, or in this case, two, bring her back into the light. If you aren't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.